Well, he challenges people to consider their priorities. That's people like you and me. I'm talking about Haggai listening to God. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hember. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, taking you through the Bible on this day. Today we land in a book called Haggai. What a very interesting prophet. We're going to read about him and read from his writings. This is going to be very good in about a minute. Corey? Well, today I'm going to be taking a look at what a typical ancient Israelite house would have been like. Ryan? Well, looking forwards to a better future, the prophet Haggai refers back to the former glory of Solomon's temple. And today I want to discuss a common element in Jewish temples. Fascinating. That's going to be really great stuff. Janice? Today, the great renovator. All right. So take your Bible, take your Bible guide, turn to the page. Let's open it up and listen to what God is saying to us right now. Haggai 1, 1 through 12. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? says the Lord of hosts because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands." Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. His name is unusual. Haggai is his name. And it is a fascinating prophet. Very quick. 
Now, the name of the prophet Haggai means festive. The book records the words and results of Haggai's work through God's calling on his life. That said, there is little information that we have on his personal life. And no statement really of given in the, in the book of Haggai to identify who wrote it. But Haggai was frustrated after the return of the exiles because the people were preoccupied with their own needs. They were building their own kingdom and their own places of living and not rebuilding the house of God. You see, the temple lay in ruins. Filled with God's Holy Spirit, Haggai called the people to get their priorities in order. They were discouraged and needed to put God first. The Lord's message through Haggai would encourage them to glorify God by rebuilding the temple. Quote, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. That is their God. Haggai 1, 13 and 15. I want to tell you, this is a, a short prophet, but uh, meaning that he has very little material here. Uh, he's got a lot of material in terms of meaning, but it's only two chapters. It's really, really something. And we need to pay attention to it. So take your Bible guide and turn to this page. Take the most important word, which is the word of God, because we're going to go into that. And let's focus on this. Now, if you don't have a Bible guide, call us or write to us and we'll send you one. Uh, or if you go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, BibleDiscoveryTV.com, go there, click on the Bible guide. It'll take you to a donate page. Thank you for your donation. Then it'll take you to a place where you can download it exactly like we have it. So you have a copy just like we do. Now, this is interesting. We look at Haggai and we need to pray because we're talking about priorities. Father, help us today because what's important to us, how we live, how we do things, how we act, where we worship, what, that, that, that all reflects on what's important to us. Help us, Father, to hear your word on priorities. Help us to understand what you've said to us. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, amen and amen. Let's look at the first chapter of the first verse. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and to Yahshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, It is time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, or is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, 
but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. You see, God was not blessing the work of their hands. God should always come first in our finances and our work. Always. God should always come first in our finances and our work. That Let me, a gentleman uh, down in Orlando, Florida, told me something very important. Claude Bowers is his name. And Claude said to me, Rod, the principles of God's giving are just like a law. If you give to God, he will bless you. If you don't give to God, he won't. It's like a law. And let me tell you something, that, that's true. If you give to the Lord's work, whatever that work is, and there's many places you can give into the Lord's work, given to the Lord's work, some of the principles are simple. People in need, that's one. Where the word of God is taught, that's two, two principles. Where you receive the word of God, and more people are in need. That's what you have to do. So keep that in mind. That's priority number one, finances. All right, Haggai 1, 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I love that. Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed came too little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Now keep this in mind. God challenges the people to consider their priorities. We should think carefully about the decisions we make to know that God or that the Lord is first in all we do. All we do. God has to be first. We should pray about things and ask the Lord. We have things in our mind that we'll just save that for over there. But, but hold, wait, wait a minute. If everything you have belongs to the Lord, you need to pray about that. Very interesting. Let's read on. This is a fascinating passage. Haggai 1, verse 10 to 12. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on the labor of your hands. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Joshua, or Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all of the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. You see, the people responded in obedience to God's voice through Haggai. We always have a choice to put Jesus Christ first or second in our lives. Now, let me, let me just say this. Choose wisely. Don't choose poorly. 
Don't do that. Choose wisely. Put God first in your finances, first in your resources, first in your life, first in how you want to do it. Put God first. Really, really important. So let's keep that in our hearts and keep that in our mind as we focus on the scripture Haggai today in Jesus' name. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you clap and when you get excited, you are celebrating life. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ gave us life. But he promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent. All right, so as we read through the book of Haggai, right away, right away in chapter one, uh, it says this in verse three, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? And of course, God is challenging the people to get back to their original task that he had given them, which was to build the temple, right? But Haggai has mentioned their paneled houses. So today, you and I are going to be taking a look, maybe not at paneled houses, but at what a typical ancient Israelite house would have looked like. Take a look. In the field of biblical archaeology, there's an interesting peculiarity that helps define the cities and lands where Israelites lived, a type of house. From the 12th to the 6th centuries BC, called the Iron Age, there was a common floor plan used in most homes throughout the land. Biblically, this represents the time period of the late judges through the entire period of the kings until the Babylonian destruction of 586 BC. The type of house is called the four-room house because of its layout. It had three long rooms and one broad room that stretched across the front or back of the house. The three long rooms could be divided by walls or by columns, and any of the rooms could be subdivided into smaller spaces. Many researchers think that the middle room was often open to the sky to act as a type of courtyard, and the houses could also have a second floor and a flat roof that could act as a sort of ancient balcony or outdoor living space. Interestingly, this basic four-room design can also be seen reflected in some monumental buildings, like forts, administrative and public buildings, and likely because of its common use as a home in life, the design can also be seen mirrored in some tombs. There are many theories trying to explain where the four-room house could have come from, like borrowing from Canaanite architecture, growth out of nomadic tent life, or a novel invention of the early Israelites. Due to its rather sudden appearance and that it dominates all of the areas the Bible ascribes to Israel, including east of the Jordan, the land of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, it seems most likely that the house plan was an Israelite invention. It's been argued by researchers that it must have been developed specifically for function. The home had to be a place for food processing, crafting daily use articles, storage, and a place to sleep for both people and animals. With the addition of a second floor and roof, there could be dedicated spaces for eating and resting. But the purpose had to be more than function because the floor plan also dominated homes with different needs within the walled cities of Israel. This has caused researchers to look for something else that is uniquely Israelite. 
mainly the Law of Moses. It's been noted that a unique feature of the four-room house is its potential privacy. One central room can access all other rooms in the house rather than having to walk through several rooms to get to your destination. This is significant because it would have helped to uphold the purity laws in the Bible. When a member of the household became ceremonially unclean, they could spend their time at home without interfering with the daily flow of life, without people having to pass through their space and also risk becoming ceremonially unclean. It has also been noted that having homes that facilitated this would have actually helped pass the laws on to the next generation. It was quite literally built into the fabric of their society. So there we go, not only what it looked like and how it was arranged, but potential reasoning coming from the, the covenant relationship that Israel had with God, this following of the law. It's a tantalizing possibility. Very interesting, Corey. Thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate it. Ryan. Okay, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, the prophet Haggai, looking towards a better future, refers back to the former glory of Solomon's temple. And this got me thinking about the angelic beings called cherubim, because images of cherubim were found everywhere in the Israelite tabernacle and temple. But what's even more interesting is that these images of angelic beings may be connected to those mythological creatures, which are commonly portrayed as having both human and animal features. The Sphinx and Griffin are two such examples. Now, though these are mythical creatures, as with most myths and legends, there probably is an element of truth involved somewhere. Could this element of truth be the biblical cherubim? Well, let's find out. There are many incredible and fanciful tales of heroes and gods, magical creatures, and the like. The half-god, half-human hero Hercules is a prime example. Other popular fables include the exploits of the wizard Merlin, along with King Arthur and his famous Knights of the Round Table. While all agree that these stories are merely myth and legend, it is also generally agreed that many of these tales have some basis in reality, no matter how small. Indeed, when we follow the development of myth, it can be observed that over time, history can be made into myth and myth can become more mythical. It is not difficult to imagine how a true story could become inflated and corrupted as it is told and retold by many different cultures throughout the ages. The same seems to be true for certain mythological creatures, in particular those which are animal-human hybrids, such as the Sphinx and Griffin, though it appears that the various portrayals of these creatures are closer to reality than one might expect. In any attempt to separate fact from fiction, we must consider the biblical record, which has repeatedly demonstrated itself as a reliable and truthful account of history. Interestingly, one does not have to look too far into the biblical text to discover a possible connection. That's because in just the third chapter of Genesis, we are introduced to those heavenly creatures called cherubim. Interestingly, the Bible describes these angelic beings as having both animal and human-like features, such as wings, human hands, and multiple faces, including that of a man, lion, and eagle. And their primary function seems to be that of guardian or protector. With this important role, it is obvious why images of cherubim were found everywhere in the Israelite tabernacle and temple. But images of these guardians are not exclusive to Israel. Cherubim-like figures are found in ancient Near East iconography, on everything from monumental architecture in temples and palaces, to reliefs and seals. 
Because their true image was eventually lost over time, the cherubim are variously depicted as creatures that are composites of human and animals. In Sumer, the figures are of winged humans. In Egypt, Syria, and Israel, the figures are of winged humans, or a composite of a lion and a human, known as a sphinx. In Assyria and Babylon, a winged bull and a human, and in Greece, a bird and a human, also called a griffin. But despite their various appearances, their role as protectors and guardians remained the same, for images of such creatures have been found flanking the thrones of kings or placed at the entrances to temples. A prime example is the golden throne of King Tutankhamun, which has arms made like winged lions, and his burial chamber is surrounded on four sides by pairs of winged human figures. Based on these findings, it seems likely that these mythological creatures are images based upon the very real angelic beings known as cherubim. So are the mythological human-animal hybrids really a corrupted image of God's angelic order? Well, it's a real possibility. What we do know for sure is that when doing any sort of world studies or any study really, it's essential to take into account the biblical record. In fact, the Bible should be our prime authoritative text since it is a truthful and accurate account from God himself. With such credentials, the Bible is absolutely invaluable to us. Not only does it reveal to us the truth about God and his, and his son, which is the most important thing, but it also provides the truth about everything else and thus helps us to form our worldview. And when we allow it to form our worldview, the world makes a lot more sense. There's a lot of confusion in the world today, but if more people simply trusted God's word and applied it in every area, there would be a much greater understanding. Remember, the Bible is that light that lights our paths. It really is. It's very interesting, you know, when you study this and, and begin to understand it. The next couple of days, we're going to get into Zechariah. That's going to be fascinating, a fascinating study. At the end of this month, we're going to get into the New Testament. That's going to be mm -hmm. great. But when you study some of these elements that you all have studied, the houses and all of that, it really makes sense. So thank you for doing that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Janice? Well, keeping with that theme, I thought I would title my segment, The Great Renovator. Now, Corey, I remember a few years back, you and I spoke at a ladies' retreat, mm -hmm. and you did a fabulous session on Jesus, the builder. Right. And I think you've kept those notes, and I'm hoping that when things settle down a little bit in life and all of that, that you'll be able to present that <laughs> again for, for a special, because it was really very powerful in its simplicity mm. as you as you broke everything down and i'm i'm kind of going in that direction today with my segment as the great renovator because we we learn here that these people Haggai was encouraging the people to build the temple he was he was coming at them from the the, the standpoint of you're building your own houses you're focusing on your own comforts and you're leaving the house of god in ruins and it got me to thinking about our very lives, you know, as, as Christians, as people who are followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that we are the temple, the Holy Spirit indwells within us. And, and God becomes the great renovator. I love watching programs where they're renovating broken down houses or they're rearranging things or they're taking antiques and and redoing them bringing them back to their original luster where the you know the artisan from the very beginning 
started out with, say, a, a very ornate piece of furniture. And over the years, you know what we do, we paint it to make it fit the style of the day or the room that we have it in. But in order to get it back to its original state, you don't just take a chisel to it and go at it. You restore it carefully and, and, and um, so that you can get back down to the detail of what the uh, uh, original designer intended for it to be. And it's the same way with you and I. You know, when we invite the Lord Jesus to come and live in our hearts for our Holy Spirit to indwell who we are, we open ourselves up. We need to be able to open ourselves up by accepting the Lord to come in and to begin to make those changes within our hearts. The great renovator I'm talking about is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes in and begins to make those changes, to make those changes that we need. We might not even see the small things, the small details, you know, when you're watching these renovation shows, isn't it so amazing that how, when they begin to bring the walls down and remove the paneling, that there can be all kinds of things behind those walls. There can be mold, there can be carpenter ants, there can be termites, there can be water leakage so that everything is breaking down and you would never see it. Well, when we allow God to begin to move in our lives and he pulls those things down and we let him make those changes. What a wonderful testimony that it is not only to ourselves when we see ourselves being changed and transformed. We are new creations in the Lord and as we follow him in his word, as we pray and we ask for his direction and guidance in our life and allow him to make those changes, we become what he originally intended us to be. And he, as the great renovator, knows the different layers and he is gentle and he's patient with us. But we need to let him in to be able to do those changes. And what a testimony that it becomes, not only for us personally, in trusting, knowing the mercy of God, the grace of God, and how he can change me how he can change you. But what a testimony it is to our friends, to our family, to our community. We become that light that Jesus talks about. We become the salt that he talks about. We become the ambassadors that Christ calls us to be. As we pray today, we need to focus on this idea of priorities because it's so important. Let's try to make God first in our life. So let's pray. Lord, I desire to keep you as the first and most important person in my life. Help me to do that today in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, amen. Now go to Bible Discovery TV and discover more about our live stream. And we'll see you there.